Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I'm back again with Yusip Oine. What's up? Hey, Toby. All good here. Interesting times ahead. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I am doing school on the side. So I am now 66.60% done. So according to my math, I only have one third left to go. So I will graduate around March uh, in 2021. And as part of this, I need to do this sort of thesis project for school as well, about 50, 60 pages on something. And I've started that process now, and this is what I've been up to lately. And one of the things you have to do is you have to come up with a topic and then align that with some sort of academic framework so that you're actually researching something as opposed to doing a lot of Googling and tweeting and coming up with with your own conclusions based on that. And I came up with a topic, and this is still a bit of a work in progress, And the topic for me is going to be extracting the intrinsic value of developer relations in market. And I'm anxious to see how that's going to turn out. And my hope for now is that I can publish this publicly as well. So when it's done, I hope by October this year that I'm all done with this. When it's done, I'll be sure to highlight it here and share the link as well. All right, that sounds interesting. I'm, I'm going to be happy to read the, uh, the result of that. Yeah, and as part of this, I might need to do a survey at some point, and, and I trust people in the audience have plenty of, of opinions on this. So I'll, I'll share the link on that too, but that might be a month or two away still. So that's mostly what's up for me. How about for you, Toby? So for me, it's a little bit less academic, and it's a little bit more... Azure related in this case, where I spent a lot of my uh, spare time now ramping up myself with the new Azure SDKs at scale. And I'm seeing how I can improve resiliency and kind of reduce the overall errors that I have, which is amazing. And I'm using this mainly for uh, Azure storage queues and key vaults and identity at the moment. And we're talking about billions of transactions to the queues across multiple subscriptions, multiple storage accounts over the last two years or so. And then I recently moved to the new Azure SDKs and I see an incredible increase in false tolerance and, and resiliency, which is, of course, something we can talk about in another episode. Um, but yeah, Azure SDK, the new ones, you know, I really like them. So if you haven't, check them out. So in a nutshell, you've spent your days in Visual Studio. I've spent my days in Word. There you go. <laughs> cool. So for today's episode, running background jobs in the cloud. So let's start by defining what's a background job anyway. Would, would you have a way of, of sort of simply state what you consider to be a background job? Yeah, I guess I would say something that runs independent of a UI, right? So something that can run on a schedule or something that can execute um, a schedule like a timer. So every one's an hour, every week, every month, whatever, that can be a background job or something that executes perhaps on request, and, but that is not tied to a front end or a UI or an API. 
something that has to happen in the background. Perhaps you're calculating stuff, perhaps you're aggregating stuff. That to me is a background job. Do you have any okay. specific you know, the cases where you think this is what I use or this is how I use the, the, to coin this phrase background job for something that you do? Uh, so I'm reflecting back to, to uh, history and when we still had MS-DOS, we would do background jobs with TSRs, terminate and stay resident. So you would execute, uh, let's say an executable, but it was implemented in a certain way that it would, it would spin off perhaps a new thread, I can't recall the specifics anymore. And then it would run somewhere in the background and you wouldn't really have a way of connecting back to that anymore. So in a way, it, it reminds me of, of Kubernetes these days, that you spin something up and then you don't really have a way of getting, getting back to it anymore. Kubernetes and MS-DOS, TSR, wow, fire and forget. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing that I, I struggled a bit this weekend, I had some time uh, to, to build a hobby project and one of those was uh, a custom presence light thingy. I'm using the Philips Hue. And in order to get that up and running, I needed to uh, create a Win32 WinForms app. Don't ask me why, but anyways, long story short, I built the Win32 WinForms app. And in order in there to actually run a long-running process, it tends to kill the UI thread, so nothing happens in your application anymore. So that reminded me of the topic that we're talking about today. Uh, depending on... The runtime, depending on the platform, you need to figure out what's the best way to run those background processes, those long-running processes, something that needs to happen, even if you still have a UI that does something totally else. Yeah, and, and doesn't, exactly, that's a good point uh, that you bring up, and it doesn't block the application, it doesn't block any threads, and if this is distributed in the cloud, even though it's not blocking a specific application, you don't want a user to just wait for the result if it takes 10 seconds, because nobody's going to wait for that. Um, exactly. So do you have any real-world use cases that you could kind of highlight before we start looking at the different types of background jobs? I, I actually have a lot. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to boil this down to, to a few um, that I did recently. And I have one AI news project which is essentially aggregating and then building up summaries with AI. So it's trying to understand what's being talked about in the news and then correlate this to specific events and whatever. Uh, long story short, I use um, Azure App Services, storage accounts, Redis cache, billions of requests, and hundreds of millions of news articles. But when a user comes to the application or when you hit the API, it's going to take a couple of seconds to query all that data because there is a lot of data. So instead of making real-time queries, I'm offering cached queries. So I'm pre-calculating all the queries that I expect, and then I put them into the Redish cache. So every one or two minutes, I cache all the data. So all the data is near time. It's not real time, but it's near time. So if the data is one minute or two minutes old, that's okay because it's a news article. Right? You're not going to consume it in one minute anyway. So if you get it 10 seconds after it's published, or if you get it two minutes after it's published, it doesn't matter. As soon as when you go to the API or to the website, you get it instantaneously. Um, so I guess that's a, kind of one of the examples where I pre-aggregate data. Um, I have another project where I also aggregate statistics, uh, portfolio progress, 
um, you know, many other things, which is based on cryptocurrencies or market from the stock market data. Maybe you have a bunch of, um, of different tickers in that project. Maybe you have a portfolio or multiple portfolios in order to calculate the performance of that one or all the portfolios. Sometimes that requires a lot of um, compute power because the portfolio is updated every one second. So it's updated a lot. Um, so here, same way, I kind of pre-aggregate and build statistics for your portfolio. And this is updated every few seconds. So when you request it, you will get it immediately from a cache instead of directly from the database. So there's a layer in between getting it from the database, building the cache, and that's where you query instead of querying directly into the database. So those, I guess, are kind of good examples of how you can decouple whatever you have in the UI and the user is doing, whether it's a, an API or a web app or a mobile app. If you don't need the data to be one second old, you can pre-aggregate it and cache it regularly. So there's always sub-millisecond queries for the user. So whenever the user comes there, they hit your web app, bam, they get the data. They don't have to wait for a query to the backend. Okay. So, what, what about you? Do you have any, any similar use cases or does it sound uh, like a good idea what I'm doing? Oh, uh, yeah, it sounds definitely like something I need to look into as well, especially on, on aggregating statistics. Uh, I've got two examples. One is I was working with a large customer perhaps three years ago. They had an internal database and it was fairly complex. It was on SQL Server. And we built a custom interface to manipulate that database. And it was all the products that the customer had. And it was tens of thousands of different products. And all of those products would have their, their custom uh, data sheets with all the functional specs on each of those individual components. And that worked internally in real time because we could easily estimate that we would have a maximum of 50 users querying the database at any given time. And this was all on-prem, so nothing in the cloud. And they then reached back to me after we'd, we'd built the interface and said, we want to publish this to the internet. And the internet, we understand, is part of the cloud or vice versa. <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, that applies. So what do you want to publish? And they had created this super specific plan on, on which columns and which views and which tables in the database they wanted to be reflected on the internet in the cloud. But it needed to be real time. So I queried back, what do you mean by real time? Could you specify this? And they said, well, if you have somebody internally modifying the database and they hit save in the, in the internal interface, that save commit needs to reflect on the public internet cloud side immediately so that if somebody is purchasing that product, it, it, it needs to update even in the shopping cart and, and even when they're just about to make the payment. And I figured, okay, so we need to do a bit of SQL Server uh, replication magic here. And we spent about three weeks uh, fiddling and fine-tuning through all the firewalls and networks and data centers and what have you to, to get the data from the internal instance of the database to this less internal instance of a database, which, which didn't have all the details, and it needed to be almost real-time. And we were capable of getting this up and running with about two-second latency. And I was immensely happy with this. We presented this back to the customer and they said, yeah, but it's not real time though. And I said, mm, yeah, but 
it's 200 milliseconds that we're lacking here. So could you perhaps accept this? And then somebody in the room says, well, we don't really care because we only update this once a month. So, so, <laughs> so, so a 30 day delay is, is perfectly fine. And there I am sitting, yeah, well, I learned quite a bit. You paid quite a bit on this. And now you say a 30 day delay, nobody wow. cares. Nice. Yes. So then I got to learn quite a bit on how do you do background jobs. And lesson number one here is that ask first, what do you need? <laughs> what do you really need? No, no, really. Yes. What do you need? <laughs> yes. So this was a longer example on, on building something that you need to execute stuff in the background. And depending on technology, if, if it's in the cloud or on-premise or something in between, there's always a way, but you need to figure out what's the optimal way of, of doing this. Those are, I guess those are pretty good use cases. Yeah. So the types of background jobs, and let's not go back to the MS-DOS times because we all probably can, can still see nightmares on that. But I would identify as sort of different background jobs. One would be a CPU intensive one. And, and often when I'm thinking of building something that needs to run in the back end, I often feel it's a CPU intensive one. But have you built anything that's GPU intensive? So I haven't built anything that is a GPU spe specifically GPU in, uh, intensive, but um, I'm not going to make this story very long. I'm actually not going to make a story at all. I did um, implement some cryptocurrency mining applications back in the day, many years ago, uh, and that required some heavy GPUs in order to calculate or, or um, yeah, crack the hashes of the Ethereum network. Um, so I, I did that, but not specifically in Azure. Obviously, I don't think that's allowed to run inside of Azure for good reason. Um, other than that, there's CPU, uh, I.O. if you write a lot to disks, uh, batch jobs, um, or long-running jobs. If you've worked with SharePoint, like the both of us have, then you remember mm -hmm. something called long-running operation that you can build for SharePoint that runs in the background. Still gives me some shrugs when I think about it. Um, or maybe you have sensitive data processing. So it's not just about CPU intensive or memory intensive or whatever. It can also be sensitive in the way that it's actually PII data or sensitive data. And then it maybe cannot be processed in the same uh, process or the same host or server even as your normal background job. So that's also the things you need to take into consideration when thinking about like what kind of background job is this going to be? Because when you know what data it's going to be, what it's supposed to do, you need to determine is it sensitive or not. Is it okay if it runs in the um, in in the same kind of process as the rest of my app, or do I need to separate that? And if I do separate it, do I need to take care with additional security, networking, firewalls? Uh, do I need to offload it entirely so nobody else has access to it, uh, including processes and identities? Uh, yeah, things like that. So different types, definitely. So you mentioned SharePoint and long-running long jobs in there. One of the key learnings that I was able to gather in all my years and, and, and sleepless nights working with SharePoint was that if you have a long-running job, it's often enough. If you don't run that in SharePoint, you run that elsewhere. But on the web page the user is seeing, you will embed the GIF animation that has the green ball with the kind of a ticker and regardless how long it takes, two minutes or two hours, it's perfectly acceptable because the user is getting feedback that something is happening. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> back in the day, for some SharePoint servers that I that I worked with, some clients, it it felt like like that long. You could wait for two minutes 
worst case for a page to load and they were maybe not happy with it, but they, they accepted it because it was SharePoint. Uh, yeah. Most of the time it was because of their own application code, but that's a different story. They were still looking at this green wheel spinning around for two minutes loading the next page, which to me is insane, but I'm very glad times have changed with SharePoint and it's super, super, super performant now. Exactly. Uh, on the GPU things before moving forward, Last week, I spent one evening uh, provisioning a couple of Ubuntu Linux VMs in Azure with hopes of uh, employing some of the GPU-related things. So NVIDIA now has drivers for Ubuntu. So once you deploy those, you get all the benefits of the GPU within the VM. And my thinking was that I would uh, run a couple of machine learning-related tasks, and I could be able to use the GPU to get that done. So far, I did not succeed. Hopefully, in the, in the coming weeks, I will find more time to fix some of those issues in there. But it's interesting now that even on Linux, I can offload things to GPU as opposed to just using the CPU. Yeah, and you can hear the differences in, in how I thought and, and how you think, where you want to use it for AI and machine learning, and I'm thinking about cryptocurrency mining. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, okay, so when we have defined a background job, and let's let's talk a bit on what you could do or what you could use to run those. But first, how do you trigger it? So let's imagine you have a background job defined and created. Now it's just sitting there, possibly in Azure, waiting for it to kick off. Uh, what what sort of triggering mechanisms do I have? So the the main types of jobs, and I guess this is. We just talked about types of jobs where you have CPU, I.O., GPU intensive. But when it comes to how you trigger a job, some people also refer to this as types of jobs. So um, I guess that can be used interchangeably. For me, there's two trigger types, if you will. One is event triggers and the other is scheduled triggers. And an event trigger is if you, for example, have a service bus or an Azure event grid or um, an Azure storage queue and you get a message into that queue, something picks it up from that queue and does whatever it needs to do and then dequeues it from the queue and then move on. Um, so that is one type of trigger. Something happens in a queue. It can also be an item in a storage account or a SQL server or whatever. Um, so if there's a new row in this table in an Azure storage account, you should execute this. Thing. Um, and the good thing about queues or service bus or event grid and whatever is the scale is immense. You can have so many things running there I process, I think I mentioned this in the start of this show, I process hundreds of millions of items or news articles, and that's billions of requests to, to various queues. Of course, this is over two years, but still, I'm, I think I'm up to now about 7 billion successful transactions, which is a ridiculous amount, and it just works. So running distributed applications, it's a perfect fit to have uh, queue-based triggers. And then you can also have um, HTTP endpoints, like maybe you have a webhook that calls something or triggers something, or uh, it can be a button um, in a web UI where a user clicks, and then it triggers something on the back end, and it tells the user, we'll send you an email when it's done. That's a great background job, because a user will not have to wait in the UI for something to happen, but the trigger is sent, and something on the back end is picking it up, and maybe five minutes later when it's done, it's going to send a notification back to the app or send an email to the user or however you want to notify them and say, you know what, we did the calculations for you. Click here to see the results. Um, 
And then the other part then is the scheduled triggers. So first we have the event triggers I just talked about, and then the scheduled triggers is a bit more simplified in a way that it's just timer-based events. So you can say every five seconds, run this code. And whatever that code does, of course, that's up to your own logic. Um, coming back to the applications I mentioned before, where I have these hundreds of millions of news articles or where I have portfolios where I need to calculate statistics and aggregate data. This runs every two seconds, every five seconds, depending on what kind of uh, platform I'm, I'm hosting it on. And when they run, they just pre-aggregate and, and pre-calculate all the data, and that's it. And when the user then hits it, they get the data directly from a cache. Um, so that's pretty slick. And it means you can, you can also run this from a function app or from a web job or from whatever you want. Um, and, and yeah, kind of like you had back in the days, and I guess um, some still use it, but like the Windows task scheduler or, or like a Windows background service, but now in the cloud. One of the things that I built a couple of weeks back was uh, the automated temperature detector for my hardware cabinet. And I needed to build an interface for that. I ended up building a universal Windows app. And that got me into scheduled triggers because I had the logic in Azure behind a logic app. And I simply need to call the logic app. So in a sense, it's sort of a webhook in there. But the universal Windows app can only execute something every 30 minutes. So whenever I open the app, it will call the logic app. Or if I pin the app on the start menu, then whenever I'm, I click on the start menu, it tries to refresh if uh, at least 30 minutes has passed since the last refresh. Yep. So, in, so it, it was interesting to see that these old concepts and notions are still very much alive today, with even with the most modern platforms we can use. Yeah, it is. And, and you have the same in, in functions, and you have the same in, in a lot of things where the minimum time span you can have is five seconds or 10 seconds or whatever, depending on what you use. You can circumvent that. Of course, maybe that's not recommended, but you can have a continuously running that never times out. So it's one execution, but inside of it, you do a, a do while loop, and then you do a thread sleep, which is a non-blocking sleep, and then you just sleep for two seconds. So you can kind of circumvent the, the rules, but obviously the rules are there for a reason, so I wouldn't recommend that. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is we, we talked about different types and different triggers, but where do you run background jobs, right? We just briefly said Azure Functions, right? And we said something else, and I think we talked in the past about logic gaps and other, other things like that. Um, so when it comes to background jobs, I've in the past done a lot of web jobs. Admittedly, I don't build web jobs at all anymore. Uh, we, we really don't have any, any close connection to, to web jobs, but with Azure Web Apps, you can still do web jobs. Uh, function apps, I guess this is where a lot of people put their triggers today because that's what's being promoted. It is super slick. It's this like Amazon Web Services Lambda uh, comparable uh, functionality, and it's pretty cool. But you can also put it on a VM. So you can run the, coming back to Windows Task Scheduler, you can run this on a VM if you need control of the host, if you need control of the operating system, maybe you need to do more things than just execute a, a few lines of code or whatever. You can still use that on, on a big VM. Um, you also have Azure Batch. And I don't hear a lot of people talk about Azure Batch. Uh, but Azure Batch is a way to 
kind of get scalable compute resources for compute-intensive workloads. And the underlying infrastructure is virtual machines. So you can get your, your pools, you, you set up the, the job pools, and you tell it whenever you know, requests come in, execute this type of job, and then it will do that in batch and spin up a bunch of VMs and process that. Um, I have not, to this date, have any use cases for, for the things I'm doing where I've had to use Azure Batch. But if you are looking into intensive workloads uh, that needs to run in the background, it's a good tip to take a look on it. And, and we'll put a link in the show notes to Azure Batch as well, of course. Um, so if, if you do stumble on something that requires a lot of compute or you know, a lot of resources and you want to run them one-off or in the background asynchronously, then take a look in Azure Batch, definitely. Uh, one of the things, uh, you mentioned web jobs, and I did learn one of the things on web jobs that you can run your custom binaries, so executable shell scripts, PowerShell, and whatnot. And defining on those is super easy because you can do it in Azure portal. But then you can also create your web jobs programmatically, meaning that you define the whole logic through Visual Studio. And I did have a look on that perhaps a couple of months ago, and it was surprisingly complex on how do you actually get to define that. And it resembled quite a bit of creating a classic NT service that you would create in, in Windows. Not, not too many people need to do that anymore because functions, as you mentioned, kind of replaced most of those needs for now. For Azure Batch, I haven't used that in production at all. When it became available, I did have a look at it and I figured when I need the scale, this is the tool to use at, at that point. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the final thing that I can see as a, a background job service is, is AKS, like managed hosted uh, Kubernetes on Azure or Azure Kubernetes services. So if you build your own applications, you build your own code and you need something to run in the background asynchronously, AKS is also a good fit for this. It also have auto scaling and all these kind of things built in. So depending on your application and your Perhaps. needs, of course, you have options. Perhaps if you choose to go to AKS and, and Kubernetes, that might be a bit overkill if you just need to schedule one task. Yep. So def definitely choose depending on, on what the need and what the future needs are going to be. It's, it's always based on the requirements. So if you already have your web apps and mobile apps or whatever it is running with an infrastructure where you have AKS, yeah, then maybe you can put just an additional simple container with some background jobs. If you have nothing, then maybe deploying a three-node AKS cluster just for running a background job might not be ideal. Yeah. Uh, should we quickly go through a few common pitfalls that people might bump into when they build their background jobs? Right. I have three from the top of my mind. Uh, number one, conflicts. Number two, resiliency. Number three, scale. I don't know if that was too quick. Um, so talk about conflicts first. You can have multiple instances compete for access to resources. So Coming back to my example, I have a distributed set of applications, and they're really distributed across the globe, geographically distributed. Sometimes they're trying to hammer the same system or the same storage account in this case. When it does that, you need to take care that if this application, which is really the same application, but it's spread across multiple instances, is trying to access the same thing, it can be rejected or blocked, either because of throttling or because of other errors. And it's important that if you design a big scale system that is distributed and is going to hammer a bunch of stuff, take care for how they communicate with uh, one another. 
So if one of them gets throttled, all of them needs to understand that this resource is going to throttle us. Otherwise, if I have 200 instances, which I have had at some point, if one or two or 50 of them get throttle warnings and say, you need to back off, maybe it takes another second or two before the rest of them gets the message. And then the first 50 have already waited their five seconds, and then they start to hammer again. So they will always be off sync and just continue to hammer. So handle your conflicts and build with resiliency. So what happens when it crashes? If you have a distributed application or if you have a background job, something running entirely in the background, there's no UI, you will never see when it crash. Um, so you need to build it with resiliency in the way that it can pick up where it left off. So if it crashes, make sure it does a graceful restart so it can pick up where it left off. Uh, and if not, obviously you need to monitor and get a, an immediate alert saying the application has a critical uh, failure. You know, someone needs to take a look at that. Hopefully that never happens. Um, and a good tip there is, of course, to use queue-based workflows that we talked about where messages return to the queue if the process was not successful. So you have queues, you have hundreds of millions of items, or maybe even only 100 items. And when those 100 items is done in the queue, how do you know they were all successful? So you need to build in this kind of resilience into your code that if something fails, you need to be able to retry that message, right? Whatever the failure is about, it needs to be uh, faults tolerant, if you will, in, in this sense, and have this resiliency built in so it can return the message to the queue and a new worker can pick it up and try again. Uh, so I think that's also, obviously, these things are something we can talk to great length about. I'm just from the top of my head now listing some of the common pitfalls. Um, and also talking at scale, when we build things at scale, it might be a good idea to separate the hosting plan for background jobs, right? And the reason for that is sometimes a web application may have an immense load on the front end, but the background jobs is maybe something running only every now and then. Then it doesn't need to scale with the front end. Or the other way around, which is common in my scenario, maybe I have a thousand users on the front end and the app service can handle that easily. But on the background, I need to calculate so many things for a thousand users. I need to aggregate data, build up statistics and whatever every X amount of seconds. So I need to really hammer stuff at the moment. So then I can scale up the background job independently if I don't host it on the same app service plan. So if I put them in a separate function or an AKS cluster or whatever it is, if I do that separately from the web app, I can just scale that up and ensure that as long as you have all of this workload, there's so many things. There's, I don't know, 1 million items in the queues. Okay, then give me 10 instances of this app service plan with Azure Functions. Go. And it aggregates and calculates. And when it's done, it scales back down without ever impacting anything on the front end. So those are some, from the top of my head, like common things you might want to think about when you design your, your background jobs. But as always, there's more to it than just a few sentences here. But hopefully someone can learn something from that or, or pick up an idea based on that. For sure. I think that's, that's all we have on top of our heads on running background jobs in the cloud. Uh, normally, at this point, we would have word of the day, but I think we figured that, Toby, you learned enough Finnish, I learned enough Swedish for a lifetime, so perhaps we'll skip it for, for now and come up with something new. Um, I'm fresh out of words. <laughs> <laughs> that too, that's a challenge. So thank you for tuning in, and until next time. See you then.
Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.